0: Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterios and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. This podcast is the second episode of 2 where I speak to Rex Kruger from Rex Figures It Out and we talk about Country Furniture by Aldrin Watson. In this episode we'll continue with the rest of the interview and after that I've got a detailed review of the book, ending up with some rankings and some recommendations. So without any further ado, let's get back into the interview with Rex. One of the things I wanted to ask you, a lot of the 18th century, 19th century books focus on, and I think it's by necessity, and you know, certainly in country furniture it would come across, that craftsmen were tool makers as well as furniture makers. And I know you've done a couple of tools, how to make a grooving tool or a router, you know, sure. um, equivalent I found that to be a really fun aspect or whatever we want to call that of the hobby, but a lot of fun in terms of putting your own tool together and figuring out how it works and trying to tune it. It seems like that also crosses over a lot to then the premium tools that I've got that I've I've got an idea on how to work with those better. What are your thoughts on making tools and getting into that sort of side of the hobby? Um, I think
1: that it's it's a really totally legitimate thing to do by itself i think if someone got into woodworking and decided they liked tool making more they should go straight into tool making and never worry that it's a lower craft it's just as good and i enjoy tool making every bit as much as i enjoy furniture making and if anything i find it to be more intellectually stimulating i also think that it's a necessity for a number of people one of the reason i tackled the router plane is that you just can't find an affordable one If you buy a vintage one, it's a lot of money. And if you buy a new one, it's a lot of money. But one thing that's really fascinating is there are some tools that I find you just can't escape spending money on. So for instance, a good smoothing plane, a good number four sized smoothing plane, you just have to spend some money on one of those. It's very difficult to make one that's good until you have so many tools that you don't need to make one anymore. But then once you've done that, Well, a jack plane, that's not very hard to make. Mm. Like a wooden jack plane, even a single iron jack plane, really quite simple to make and will work quite well. Uh, The same thing with, let's say, a dovetail saw. It's really worth spending a little bit of money on a good dovetail saw. But then if you just need a saw to break down boards, well, you could make a bow saw with a very inexpensive blade. You could even buy a, a blade at the hardware store. You know, buy a a cheap disposable saw and it'll cross cut boards just fine. So the more I make tools and the more I think about them, the more I get a sense of where your money has to go. So I've known some very uh, wealthy woodworkers where all of their planes are Lee Nielsen planes, even their scrub plane, even their number five jack plane. And I would never say this to a friend of mine, but I often look at those collections and think, well, that's a waste. Definitely, your smoothing plane could be a premium plane. And maybe you'd like a shooting plane or a low angle plane to be a premium plane. But a scrub plane, a jack plane, and even a jointer plane, and many other tools, a much more inexpensive tool will do exactly the same job. So I think doing some tool making of your own, even if you never make a great tool, and you probably can, it's not rocket science, but even if you never make a great tool, just knowing where your money needs to go. And that's something I'm working on a lot with my YouTube channel right now. Is slowly, I did a review. I'm just, I happen to have it on my desk right here. This is the Indian made Soba smoothing plane. Yeah. And this plane I reviewed very favorably, and I do like it quite a bit. It comes in at about $40 American. And I think for that price, it's very good. But I am coming to the point where I think maybe it's not good enough. And even though I think it's an excellent value i think it might be time for me in that series to step up to something that costs a little bit more money that will function a little bit better because that smoothing plane that's one place
0: where i feel like you just can't get away from needing a high quality tool i'd 100% agree with that funnily enough those sobers are one of the few brands that are also stocked over here so we have some you know imported premium ones and then we have sobers and I don't have any of them. Sorry, I'm going to probably sound like your rich friend now, but I've got a a, a mix of old records. So What I did uh, when I started was I just went and basically raided every antique store and uh, got a few Mm -hmm. of eBay and whatever. And stocked up with a a number three, another number three, and number four, number four. You know, I just built this whole collection up on the wall, and they were invariably covered in rust. And then I stripped them, and I did everything with them. And then I think it was last January, I just looked at them, and I said, I've got 13 planes on the wall, and they're (laughs) gathering dust. I don't want to clean them. I don't want to sharpen them. You know, just looking at them, I just feel like, oh, there's so much work if I put aside a morning to sharpening them. So I actually stripped that right down now. I did go and get a, a Lee Nielsen uh, number two and I got a number four. And, and, and funnily enough on that, that's probably the Lee Nielsen I regret because I bought the bronze the bronze uh, number four. And mm-hmm. I think in retrospect, I would have preferred to have got the steel one. I found the bronze very heavy. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's a reason for that. But I do prefer a light number four just for general work. So, I, so In I, fact, I, I
1: have, as we're sitting here talking, this is my number one. This is my Stanley. And this is my Stanley number four. And one of the things that I find so notable about it compared to modern planes is it's so light. Yeah. And the, the trick of that, especially when you're doing woodwork as a profession is you might have a tool like this in your hand for five or six hours. And the lightness is a much bigger advantage than heaviness. I think people very much overstate the advantage of heaviness in tools, but I still think I have to say, even if that Lee Nielsen is heavy. The precision of it, you know, I could could see going that way someday myself, even though I've been kind of anti-premium tool and I've always tried to lean towards the less expensive. For my own woodworking, one day I might buy one premium plane to have something that's just as accurate and perfect as possible. That seems reasonable as you uh, improve in the craft.
0: Yeah. I think an aspect that you touching on that, I think as much as I love the Lee, Lee Nilsons and as much as I got my tax refund at roughly the time they were having sales and all the rest of that, sure. I could not bring myself to buy a scrub plane. You know, the other day I was filling in a bio and they asked, well, what's your favorite tool? And unashamedly, my favorite tool in the entire shop is the scrub plane. It's mm. maybe not the most ga- glamorous, but I, I love it. I, I thickness, you know, my, my wood with it. I just love the... The kind of chunks it can, can really take off the wood. I love it on edges. I love it, you know, even, even for, um, let's call it the four-plane type work of, of flattening the panel. I, mm-hmm. I love what it can do. And I still couldn't bring myself to go and buy a premium brand of that. I uh, have no I,
1: idea why you would. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. I was going to say when I built ahead. that joiner's bench of mine recently, the, uh, the scrub plane, which is a cheap hardware store plane I turned into a scrub. That was the only plane that was used on that build and it did everything that was necessary i even i think after i flattened the top i came back with a smoothing plane but as far as building it and trimming the parts and truing everything whole thing was done with a scrub plane that i didn't even sharpen once during the entire build i grabbed it off the shelf and built the entire bench with that plane w- without even sharpening it so the, the utility of those is
0: unbelievable. We spoke about making tools. That, funnily enough, was the, well, I guess the only tools I've made so far were wooden scrub planes. And the, the lightness of that and the way they just, you know, kind of glide across the wood, coming back to, you know, a bronze equivalent. Uh, there's something fantastic about working with a light, easy to use, uh, mm. you know, plane. And w- where do we need accuracy on that thing? I mean, I'm gouging these huge channels out of the wood i'm going to come back with a jack or a jointer afterwards so to me that's probably the best place to start if you wanted to go and make a a bench plane go, go make a scrub plane the rankest beginner cutting corners and not paying attention will probably still put out a perfectly acceptable uh tool and then you know, aligned with that, that's the kind of thing that you can, you can sharpen on a grinder, you can sharpen badly by hand, freehand, you can sharpen badly with the jig, and you're still going to have something that cuts the wood. So it's a, mm. it's a nice tool. It's a nice forgiving tool to go out there and, uh, you know, get your feet wet, as it were, in terms of that, you know, aspect. Mm. When you read the book, you know, one of the ones that jumped out for me was a fro as a tool that doesn't seem to get a lot of modern love. Were there any other tools in country furniture that sort of jumped out for you that you hadn't, seen before or used before that you found interesting to work with or new to work with
1: yeah so there is a, a tool in here called the sabot maker's saw so it's it's just one very brief picture that watson gives so a sabot that's the french word for a wooden clog and a sabot maker's saw is like a cross between a back saw and a frame saw So it has a backsaw-style grip and then a long piece of wood that comes out and then actually a tensioning rod and a very thin, narrow blade. And there's no question that I have to make one of these. After I found it in Watson's book and looked around the internet for them, there are many of them. At some point, they were a very common tool. And it looks like they combine the cheapness and the easiness of a bow saw, and anybody can make a bow saw. It's like a scrub plane but it's a more detail-oriented tool. And I think it's possible one could make a very good joinery saw using this approach. And all you have to do is look at the picture and you instantly know how to make one. It's made from one board. And so I'm very much hoping uh, in the future, the problem is that I do a video every week and yet the number of ideas I have are so many that I'll have an idea for sometimes a year before I finally get around to doing the video on it. So the bench is getting done and I'm going to move on to, some more tool builds. I'm hoping that more building of saws is going to get in there because that's a real barrier that many woodworkers face. You can buy an okay, a good cross-cutting saw at the hardware store, but beyond that, you're in trouble. And finding good saws for woodwork is a huge challenge. So trying to help people get those more cheaply I mean, I definitely got some ideas from Watson's book, and I, I'm always looking for ideas because they cost a lot of money.
0: Maybe, you know, we come back to this internet perfection. You know, you see these plane tools, you see these racks of hand tools, you see the Seaton tool chest, and you think, gee, I need all of that stuff to get going. And I think you're doing a great job, particularly like with the plane reviews, et cetera, of saying to guys, or, or a spoke shave, you know, should I buy a spoke shave? Should I make a spoke shave? You, you've got a lot of those sorts of videos. But I think if you can find those affordable ways to get the basic tools, it's amazing what you can get out there. So I think any tool that you can help a user or stop it from being a barrier to entry, I think those are fantastic videos. I mean, certainly, I'm sure you'll get a lot of hits on that, and they're really useful to viewers.
1: I appreciate that. And the thing that I find, too, is that there is a lot of value in having a tool that will just get you going. So I've often made videos about tools or made tools that I know someone will only use for a few months but it'll carry them through until they can afford or build something better. And especially with the specialty planes I make, the idea with those is you're able to bootstrap. After you make the rabbit plane and the router plane, those two together can help you make the grooving plane. And then you can put grooves in your work, which otherwise is quite difficult. Like you can cut a rabbit without a rabbit plane, but cutting a groove to install a drawer bottom without a plow plane or a specialty plane, it's very difficult. So I I always think about it in terms of people being able to bootstrap, and I think there will come a point where even in my ultra-simple videos, you'll see two or three high-end tools where I will eventually just come to the conclusion, look, for the time it takes, it's not worth making this tool or that tool. So we're going to spend a little money on two or three things, and then everything else we're going to make. But we'll have a basic set of precision tools to begin with. And everything we make with those will also be good because we'll start from a good standpoint.
0: You know, there's another aspect of this, which is maybe people coming from a power tool background as well, you know, assuming you're not straight into hand tools is the manufacturers have told us that, you know, you spend lots of money and you can buy quality, you know, so there's that view in the back of your head that, gee, I'm struggling with cutting this mortise and tenon or let's take the dovetail, you know, we spoke about that earlier, but I'm struggling with the dovetail. So what I need to do is place an order with you know, bad acts and get their stiletto and I'll spend that $300 and that will just buy me what a $300 router would have got me, you know, where I just stepped up on the quality and I got a a end product that I needed. And, you know, frankly, some of the tools can hold you back a little bit, but the reality is probably 95% of that skill. I suspect that you could probably cut a better dovetail with a 26 inch handsaw than somebody who's gone and got a fantastic tool out the box and hasn't practiced with it at all.
1: Well, and that may or may not be true. I admit to not being a great dovetail cutter myself because my work just hasn't gone in that direction. One thing that I think is surprising about dovetail saws is is that the the Lee Nielsen dovetail saw, which I've used and is beautiful, is $125, which when you think that you're purchasing a really top-end tool, I think they've tried very hard to keep that price down. And whereas I, I often find their planes out of reach just for what they cost, I've recently been thinking very hard about picking up a Lee Nielsen dovetail saw. $125 just doesn't sound like that much money for something that I know is top quality. And it, it makes me wonder how another manufacturer is asking three or $400 for a dovetail saw. I'm quite skeptical that one could be that much better than Lee Nielsen, which is a, a gold. And I don't own any of their tools, but I've used them in other shops. And they clearly are a gold standard company. They're one yeah. of the best that's out there. If your tools cost more than theirs, something might be the matter.
0: Look, I've got some premium saws, but, you know, mm. for a long time, I used a Veritas saw. the rip-filed 12-inch saw, and I use it unashamedly for cutting cross-cut joinery and butchered, you know, all kinds of joints with it. There's a good mid-tier of tools that, you know, you're mm. probably getting a lot more bang for back. Much. Um, and then again, I think it's time versus money and who you are and what you spend. You know, if you've got a Ferrari in the garage, then probably just run off and buy the most expensive one first. You'll save money in the long run. I think if you're trying to do this on a on a shoestring, there's probably some tools where you're economizing too much and you mm. should be spending a little bit more. They're not unaffordable if they treat it as purchases over time. I don't want to mm. go and drop 125 dollars times 15 tools to get going in a you know it's ridiculous but getting something like that once a year and adding that to the repertoire would certainly make a lot of sense but you did the joiners bench and you've got a a great build on how to make a cheap vice have you made any wood screw vices that for me just feels like quite an affordable way of making a vice but then also having a tool that you could make clamps with and do other things with
1: no you've read my mind i think that i wouldn't use a, I think that the size you want for making clamps is something around an inch, 25 millimeters in diameter is about right. And I think that size screw is probably insufficient for making a really great woodworking vice. It'll make a Moxon vice, which is great for joinery, but I like my vice to be very big and very strong. So for that, I would be inclined to either buy a wood screw or I just bought a metal screw. Now, you raise a fantastic point, because one of the things I'm thinking about is purchasing one of those kits to make roughly a one-inch, 25-millimeter thread, and then going on a pretty deep dive on how a hand-tool woodworker can really make their own clamps economically. There are many, many YouTube videos on making your own clamps, but they're almost all power tool-focused. And I have to admit, I've found many of these videos very ridiculous, because if you have a table saw, a band saw, a drill press, and a belt sander. You don't need to make your own clamps. You can just go buy clamps. Yeah. So uh, there are a few designs that are out there from when clamps were made in the shop. And I think an important project I'm hoping to do uh, within the next year is get some of those designs, figure out what's reasonable to make. And then come up with some clamp designs that are fast enough and inexpensive enough that a hand tool woodworker would really save some time or save some money by making them. It's also important to know that, you know, in in shops, if you go back 150 or 200 years, clamps were actually quite rare. Um, Most woodworking didn't use a lot of clamps and woodworking was transformed by the invention of modern yellow PVA glue. And many things that simply were impossible with hide glue can be done with PVA glue and clamps. So it's not just the need for clamps, which I use many, many clamps in my woodwork. I'm a modern woodworker. But the more we think about the way things used to be done, you might not even need as many clamps as you think you do, uh, because there, there were literally furniture shops that didn't have any at one point in history. And using different techniques or using different glues can make that a possibility again.
0: I'd echo that in that there was a lot more use of batting things up against things, using wedges, just nailing stuff permanently to something. And then, then removing it when you, you know, when you finished working on, on the project, I saw, I saw in, in Watson's book, there's a thing on, um, cutting molding, you know, where, uh, oh, yeah. I, sorry, I, th- I think it was no c- cutting fluted, you know, decorative fronts. And he just says, yeah. well, you, you nail the stop block on and you nail this uh, support to the side. And yeah. then you put the piece of wood there and that's where you start the molding plan and I was like, you know, <laughs> I cringed at the thought of 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 nailing something to the side and doing that. I just I just couldn't wrap that around in my my head. But you know, it's a, it's a practical way of you know just tacking something on, doing what you need to do, taking it off. There's definitely a a very real way of of doing that. But I've actually got two uh, wood screws. I've got the three quarter inch and then I've got a one and a half inch. So that mm. gives me gives me quite a nice uh, range in the shop. I'm using the the one and a half for twin screw mocks and style vices so i used the one and a half for that and then i got the three quarter to make some uh, smaller clamps for around the shop but the other thing that was quite interesting is i made a panel clamp a while back you know literally just drilled a bunch of holes in, into two pieces of wood and made a in a little hinge on the side and i used a metal half inch bolt that i got at a woodworking store and tapped the hole into the wood and put that together and it uh, it all works fine so there's it's quite a lot you can do when you you know start doing some threading and uh, tapping in your own shop. A lot of fun with that. And my boys, we had an old uh, record, quite a solid, heavy metal vise. And once I made it with a wooden vise, they said, no, they prefer this. So that that record's now under the workbench and the wooden vise is all all we use in the shop because it's easy to tighten, easy to uh, use, comfy. They have a lot of fun with it. So yeah, I use that for all my joinery now. So it's quite a nice addition to the shop. I
1: went on a, a huge hunt to find my original cast iron vise that's on my larger workbench. And at the time, I didn't even understand that wooden vices existed. I had only ever seen metal ones. And it was only through reading books and researching the craft more that I understood that wooden vices even existed. Uh, Now that I have one, I'm very pleased with it, especially its size. A wooden vise can be so much bigger than a comparable metal vise and hold work very securely.
0: Rick, sorry, I I wanted to say thank you. I've taken a a lot of your time, and I could probably carry on talking for for hours, given the well. We'll just
1: we'll get together and do it again. It was it was yeah. a great pleasure. I was really honored to be asked, and I've listened to a couple episodes recently, and so enjoyed your podcast. I'm so glad someone's doing it because it needs to be done, and God knows I don't have the time to do it. So thank goodness you're doing this because now instead of having to be involved in it, I can just listen to it, which is what
0: I really want. That's fantastic. I I, I really appreciate that sentiment and, you know, thanks for taking the time to, to talk to me. So that about wraps up the conversation with Rex. Let's go back and take a look at the book Country Furniture in a bit more detail. As mentioned, Aldrin Watson was a professional illustrator. In fact, he was a second generation illustrator to parents who both made a living from professional art. Furthermore, he lived a rough and rugged life and had a deep love of the countryside. He lived in rural New England, and had plenty of experience with woodworking of the type outlined in this book. I think this deep personal experience with the subject, as well as an artist's eye for detail, make him uniquely suited to exploring the content of country furniture. The book starts by exploring who the person was that made country furniture. In this context, country furniture is solid, practical furniture that was made with the materials at hand, and a limited supply of tools. Some of which may have been imported from England, but in the main were made by a local blacksmith, or the furniture maker himself. And by furniture maker we mean jack of all trades. The first chapter is aptly labelled Furniture Maker, Farmer, Woodsman, and the author makes the point that the majority of furniture makers were doing this as one of the many roles they played. Fair enough, if you were particularly good at it, you might have considered specialising in it to a degree perhaps even to the extent of a dedicated building and employing a few less enterprising craftsmen. But in the main, the furniture maker was just as correctly labelled farmer, woodsman, or perhaps some other craft he had an aptitude for. What was common to these makers is that they had access to abundant forest resources. Oak, pine, maple and hickory were found in abundance, and there's an enjoyable chapter about which woods the country furniture maker would have employed. And more importantly, when and why he employed them. They might not have all had access to Janker hardness tests, but it's safe to say that the working properties of wood were better understood by the average artisan than by today's woodworker. Much of this had been passed down from ancestors, but I'm sure there was a lot from the practical experience of working with the material day in and day out. I don't think it's a coincidence that their furniture survived centuries of racking and wood expansion. Many of these makers would have been first generation, or at most a few generations removed from European immigrants, and they brought with them the tools that were commonly used in their homelands. Perhaps they might have been frustrated by the lack of a particular tool that they'd left behind, but while transport was expensive and highly regulated, there was still a flourishing trade in tools, particularly with Sheffield steel plane blades. The author does a good job of recording the ancient development and evolution of the common joints and techniques and I particularly enjoyed the sections where there are clear illustrations of the development of common furniture forms. By the time I'd read this first section of the book, I felt like I'd gotten into the head of the person making the furniture. And in many ways, this history gives an insight into the process and the people, and helps to understand aspects that are included, as well as ones that are missing, from the furniture in question. Likewise, the next chapter, which traces the path of the tree from lumber to sawmill to sawbench, shows clearly what types of technology were employed in the processing of the wood, and gives some idea of the specialisation of labour. I think it's important here to take heed of the author's note about transport. While we might be tempted to think of the colonies as closely linked geographically, the pace of land transport makes these early communities similar to isolated islands, linked only by sea trade, with all but their closest of neighbouring towns. This would also explain why there might be a very specific local reliance on doing things a particular way. If there's no sawmill nearby, you can bet that there's a lot more clapboard construction. The consideration of the typical workshop in the book feels close to home. I guess that only a few years ago I would have struggled to identify half the tools in the illustrations, and yet now I find myself ticking them off mentally and comparing them with my own collections. In fact, for a reasonably experienced hand tool user, There will be very few items that need explaining but as there is a dedicated chapter on the bench tools and the equipment anything you cannot fathom from the illustrations or aren't familiar with is amply covered in the text at this point in the book text and narrative give way to illustrations and there are over 80 pages of excellent illustrations like we discussed earlier in the podcast these illustrations are excellent they are numerous and they are comprehensive you'll quickly work through the section gaining a wealth of knowledge as you do. And don't get me wrong, it's not like the rest of the book doesn't have illustrations, it's just this particular section which takes you through the processes used by the woodworker are richer with illustrations than the rest of the book. Mark the pages when you pick up something new, and I'd suggest you return to these notes in six months or a year, because as you develop in your woodworking, there are bound to be subtleties that you missed on the initial read. The final 50 pages of the book has four chapters. Cash, customer and credit goes into some detail about the typical experience of a furniture maker as it related to business. This is a fascinating account of a semi-barter economy and what working as a furniture maker entailed when you're running a business as a furniture maker. Sawdusts and shavings give supplementary lists that support the conclusions that the author came to in the book. There are lists such as the number of people employed in the respective woodworking professions, lists of tools that were documented in the wills of various furniture makers, alternate part-time professions listed for furniture makers, and articles or lists on items as diverse as making a windmill or a list of furniture produced by a maker, as well as the mechanical properties of wood, as documented by Samuel Record. Then the book has the best glossary of any book I have ever read. Not only does the author describe terms in some detail, there is a visual element with illustrations of a lot of the terms. I'd go as far as saying that this visual glossary could be handy for anyone reading any historical text on woodworking. Then we have a selected bibliography. This gives a good indication of the amount of research that went into writing the book. As the author references the Dermany workshop early on in the book, it should come as no surprise that Charles Hummel's excellent book, With Hammer in Hand, is included. And by the same token, I wasn't surprised to see Eric Sloan in here either, given the beautiful nature of the illustrations in this book. But in addition to these two, there are two and a half pages of selected titles, and it's a list that I've enjoyed mining for titles. I'm sure that you'll find something in them that piques your interest, whether that will be Wright's book on cultural life in the colonies, or an interesting reference to a shaker book that you hadn't heard of before. So in conclusion, Country Furniture is 274 pages long and it's written by Aldrin A. Watson. The book is no longer in print, but you can find the book at affordable prices at retailers like Amazon and Thrift Books or wherever you like to buy your second-hand books from. I wouldn't be surprised if this book could be found in a local library either. As at the beginning of March 2020, it costs approximately $12 to $20 depending on condition. I also noticed with some interest that it looks like Amazon is taking pre-orders for a paperback edition, which is expected in stock towards the end of March 2020. I'll wait and see and watch this with some interest. The paperback edition is the edition I have, and it's definitely worth the list price of $18.95 if this is happening. I'm giving the book a top ranking of 8 out of 10 in the category Historical, and a rating of 8 out of 10 in the category Techniques. I'll refer you back to my introduction in terms of why I've rated the books in this manner, but needless to say, this is the gold standard of historical hand tool books. If you're looking for a book that will give you a newfound appreciation and inspiration to build some solid, functional and beautiful furniture that is not going to break the bank in terms of wood costs or stress your skills to the point of perplexity in construction, then I'd suggest this book will get you into the perfect frame of mind and perhaps give you a newfound gratitude to our ancestors as well as an appreciation of their struggles which in turn might just get you to push on through when you're struggling a little bit in the shop. If you're considering buying it, or enjoyed reading it, you might also want to get a copy of Watson's other book, Hand Tools, Their Ways in Working, which is an excellent companion guide. It focuses more in-depth on specific tools. So that's it for now, woodworms. And remember, go make some simple, functional furniture that your descendants can be marvelling at in a few centuries' time, and keep reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these podcasts as much as I did discussing them with Rex. Once again, I'd really appreciate your feedback on this format, and whether or not you've enjoyed it. If you've got any comments or suggestions, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes.